Hello and welcome to the Systematic Understanding of Everything, an Exalted podcast. This show is a collaborative effort between members of the Story Told, Bonus Experience, and Mage the Podcast. We're going to break down the basics of Exalted from its rules to its setting. I'm Chaz, Exalted writer and fan. And I'm Monica, 3rd edition supplement developer and lead mechanical developer for Exalted Essence. I'm Terry, producer for the show. This wow. is episode 19, Verdant Understanding. <laughs> Today we're going to take a tour of the East, and this is going to be a little bit of an interesting episode because we've already covered a lot of the locations traditionally associated with the East um, in Northeast, like Halta and Linuan, and in the scavenger lands like Metagalpa and Chaya. Uh, so we're going to be looking at some of the new locations from the East, as well as a few classic uh, elements of the setting associated with the East. What is the elemental or narrative theme of the East, and how is it expressed? The elemental pole of wood dominates the East with verdant growth from the coniferous forests of the Northeast to the tropical jungles stretching South. Trees stretch impossibly tall until they go beyond the edge of creation, where they stretch endlessly into the sky. One can climb forever without finding canopy or ground. The theme of this area is dominance, bounty, and the splendor of nature. In the East, mortals need to carve out a place to have the room to grow while everything else is pressing to do the same. Communities may be isolated, and travel is difficult. This is different from the harsh survivalism of the North. Chaz, you want to go into that? Yeah. When I was looking at the East and trying to pull a theme out of it, I kind of looked at this dominance of wild, verdant growth. And you do have kind of a survival story, but it's a very different survival story than kind of the harsh experience of the North. Because instead of characters struggling against a wilderness that is inhospitable, that has threats that are going to kill them. They are thriving in an area where everything thrives, and because of that verdance, they face a different set of challenges. The East is also entirely beyond the reach of the realm in a way that means that the realm doesn't define it. A lot of areas suffer the realm's influence, And while the scavenger lands that we talked about last time is free of realm dominance, they're still defined by their fight and opposition against it. In the East, the realm is just so far uh, and it's so inaccessible to the the great houses that civilization is allowed to uh, just emerge in in pockets and just be in, in a way that's different from most other parts of creation. Is this the case with the extremities of all the directions? Like, is the far north equally out of touch of the realm or the far south or the far west? Or is the realm more present in those directions? The realm is more present in those directions. They have trade lines that kind of reach through the direction. The work of the scavenger lands being resistant to the realm, I think, Mm -hmm. stops the realm from reaching its tendrils uh, into the east. That means... uh, Unlike, say, the south or the north, where they do have a trade route that stretches far, far into the interior, in the east, um, they, they don't get much further than, than the coast because of the scavenger lands, which okay. with a few notable exceptions. One of the other threats that's always seemed kind of omnipresent in the east to me is the fair folk. It's the direction that spawned the Balorian Crusade. More on that later. And there's always been this idea that that fair folk hunters stalk the forest floor for unwary mortals. Uh, And that's just another one of the threats of dealing with living in the East. 
the rest of the East lets you do dark fairy tales in the Black Forest. Uh, your your choice of Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, any sort of, like, don't wander into the, the trees at night, you'll die. Any kind of that sort of thing. Um, but it also lets you play characters from tropical and rainforest societies, a thing you don't see in a whole lot of games. Uh, what are the key geographic features in the East? It's trees! Um, we've mentioned... <laughs> this above um, driven by the elemental pull of wood but this also has a lot of room for variety you can have forested swamps jungles uh, almost mangrove like stretches with trees growing out of the water classic hardwood forests uh, but also range into the fantastical with like giant mushrooms casting bioluminescence over a forest floor that never sees the sun through the mushroom caps or skyscraper sized oaks that hold cities in their branches. All of this is a uh, key to the geography of the East. Another aspect is that like the scavenger lands, there are many rivers, but unlike the mighty rivers of the scavenger lands that uh, facilitate trade, the rivers of the East are, are shallower, narrower, less consistent. And while they irrigate the forests and, and let this verdant growth take over the direction, they don't create the ancient trade highways that rivers often represented. So just to jump in here on the idea of a, of a non-navigable river, one of my favorite facts about the place where I live is that it's right near a very big river, which is the largest non-commercially navigable river in the United States, which is... All that to say, I think it's really neat that I kind of know what a river like that looks like. That It is a mile wide and compared to most rivers, extremely shallow. So it is full of dotted little islands and like little rocky outcroppings that you could not get a ship past. However, it doesn't mean you can't take things like a pontoon or a canoe or a junk or any other exalted appropriate personal craft, a boat, not a ship, uh, down it. So I imagine people who live in this part of the east certainly get around via those rivers but they sure aren't shipping things down there with the rivers not being as usable how does stuff get around if that's not answered in a different section like we talked about in the northeast there are kind of tree highways where they can meld branch to branch and and travel by foot there's also kind of ad hoc trade routes there is not a tremendous amount of long distance trade in the east it's kind of built around either high price uh, elite goods being traded by small time traders or kind of primate centers drawing in wealth from the hinterlands. I'll consider that when I make my von Thunen model of creation. <laughs> so what are the key cities and cultures in the East? The East has a lot of weird ones. The East has a lot of weird ones. Uh, a lot of the cities, like many places in creation, are built on the ruins of the, the past ages, but in the East, sometimes more obviously so. Uh, kind of right off the top, we have Mahalanka, uh, which gets a detailed write-up in Fangs at the Gate. It's the capital of a lunar empire ruled by Roxy, Queen of Fangs, built on the ruins of ancient Spurman, which is a first-age city that was a center of sorcery and learning. And the city center is still dominated by towers of glass and steel that reach over 100 stories high. And there's a great piece of art for it in Fangs at the Gate, where you see kind of a, a, like a market bazaar, and then like in the distance, these overgrown glass and steel skyscrapers. Uh, Roxy keeps the Book of Three Circles, the greatest repository of sorcery, safe in the towers of Spurman. And the city itself, which is called the City of a Thousand Golden Delights, sprawls out into the jungle. 
those who pass Roxy's trials um, become the ape folk of the Thousand Fangs army, uh, the elite of Mahalanka raised above the mortal population. And the city is also the center of the total control zone, which is Roxy's personal empire. I wrote the fiction about Roxy in Fangs of the Gate. Awesome. I just looked up the picture Chaz referenced, and it's awesome, and that is going to be our show cover art. Uh, one of the other cool, weird places in the East is Rathus, uh, which is this ancient city uh, dating back to one of those civilizations a few apocalypses ago. In the, in the current age, it is an un- uninhabited ruin with an asterisk. In previous editions, Rathus was the old solar capital before it moved to the Blessed Isle. I don't know if third edition will be keeping that, but it's a detail that I've always really liked. Solars have this theme of being people who are kind of on their own and have to establish their own uh, power and have to try to make their way in a world that doesn't really want them around. And it's cool to have this like weird ancient home base that currently nobody is using, also with an asterisk, uh, (laughs) that you could find, uncover, maybe learn about your ancient self, and then maybe use that to make something new. The asterisk, however, is that it is not actually uninhabited. It is not exactly a place you can just sort of walk in, plant your flag, and be like, well, it's mine now, because the Dragon Kings live there. And there's a whole population of people living under the city, worshipping terrible leech gods, and there's also this guy called Filial Wisdom, and he kind of thinks he rules the place, and, you know, you're going to have to deal with all of that. So let's <laughs> let's start with the leech gods, who are exactly what they sound like. Terrible, blood-devouring eldritch deities that live underground and they eat people. I don't know what else you were expecting. <laughs> One of them is named Hanta. He is a jerk. He has a cannibal cult. And he adopted the solar uh, who exalted early. One of the, the solar exaltations that didn't make it into the Jade Prison. He's several hundred years old. And he is a dick. His name is Filial Wisdom. <laughs> he runs the, the, this cannibal cult dedicated to Hanta. He is a petty tyrant. He thinks he's king shit of the Undermountain. And he makes really a fantastic villain. There's also the fun part that if you're like, oh, we'll go reclaim Rathus. And you'll wind up there and like, oh, it's actually, there's a terrible undercity and it's full of (laughs) ancient evil gods that want to eat people. uh, And they've propped up this solar (laughs) as their king and he wants to kill and eat you. Phew, you got your work cut out for you. (laughs) In the second edition book, it's like, oh, also the fair folk who live there hate him and want him gone. So they might team up with you to depose him and then turn on you immediately because they're fair folk. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. The two things that immediately came to mind is I was reading through the outline and there was a thing marked asterisk and I assumed that there was a city by the name of asterisk because asterisk. sometimes exalted be like that. And the other thought That's when due, you talked about correct. <laughs> and my other thought is when you're talking about uh, empty, I'm like, ah, yes, empty as a dungeon. So the other asterisk being the Dragon Kings, we'll get to those in a little bit. One of the other weird locations that's gotten a lot of attention in past editions is Farhold, uh, which is a logging boomtown on the edge of the Scavengerlands, where peoples from the Scavengerlands have kind of delved into the forests and first faced a war against the tribes of the region who worshipped the wrathful god Elder Oak. The loggers struck a deal with Elder Oak, uh, this forest god, to give him plentiful worship in exchange for being allowed to harvest the trees. And so the tree god turned on the local tribes. And it just kind of looks at this microcosm of what what's going on here. How do the gods interact with mortals? How can they be assuaged to change ideas or change sides? Um, and that, that's part of what you can get at with a place like Farhold. 
there are these groups of people called the forest people who are, I'm going to call them collections of family units or clans, as opposed to the word tribes, which I assume is the word used in the book. Yep. They're like family units of hunter-gatherers who thrive on the bounty of the forest. They're priests. The word used is shamans, I believe, in the book. We're going to talk about how all these things are maybe not fantastic. Uh, Their priests make pacts with gods and raksha to keep them safe. Um, And many of them keep to the trees, eschewing the dangers of the forest floor. They're described as highly decorated with bright body paint, vivid tattoos, and other ornamentation. Which, phew! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like the idea of, like, hunter-gatherer family units traveling through the thing, uh, adhering to rituals they know keep them safe from the predations of the magical things that live out there. I mean, like, that seems reasonable, but... Yeah, it, it also leans hard into the noble savage stereotype, which really should be avoided. So I hope they get a more nuanced look in the future. And again, I think they're neat for all of the reasons that you mentioned, and, and just think that they need some more nuance from, from a writer who can speak to that with care. I agree. Corebook also offers a couple new eastern locations. Nikara is a trade city where the noble families have worked to infuse supernatural power into their bloodlines. Uh, they seek out demons, fair folk, gods, elementals, and sorcery to bring power to their families. They have a low-key war with the Broken Horn tribe and their lunar backers. Nachara was on some maps in prior editions, but this is the first time we've really gotten any details about what's going on there. We also have the new location of Izahuaca, which is the capital of Ixcoatli, uh, the Empire of the Winged Serpent. It's ruled over by serpent folk and Raitan folk, who united their warring peoples in the wake of the contagion, and now occupy the higher rungs of society, ruling over their vast forest empire. Uh, There's a kind of Mesoamerican vibe going on in the naming and the little bits of arts that we have. What interesting or notable historical events happened in the East? Well, both of the world-threatening calamities that happened at the end of the Shogunate emerged from the East. Um, First the Contagion, and then the Belorian Crusade. Do you want to talk about the Belorian Crusade, Monica? Sure, I think we've mentioned it vaguely before, um, but the basics are that when the boundaries of creation weakened because of the mass deaths of the contagion, a raksha called Baylor convinced the rest of the fair folk that now was a perfect time to invade en masse and to sweep creation back into the chaos of the wild once and for all. Uh, so they invaded. Huge invasion on all sides. It is the triggering event that caused the Scarlet Empress to seize the controls over the realm defense grid and basically blast his ass back into space. Yep. Balor, kind of the bad guy. Yes. The East is also the home of the Dragon Kings, so it's a major location in creation's lost prehistory um, in the ages before the Divine Rebellion. And then, like Monica said, uh, has a history of being uh, kind of the capital of the first solar deliberative after the Divine Rebellion. So what things would draw a circle or a character to the East? Well, you have a lot of lost history. There's Rathus, there's Mahalanka, there's other ruins that are relatively intact from the First Age that might hold some knowledge or artifact your circle needs. Maybe there's some things that like have long since forgot been forgotten to history. Maybe your character's previous life is buried out there somewhere. All sorts of weird lost things you could find. There's also lots of weird living things. Uh, so whether medicines or poisons or sorceress reagents, they may exist only in the jungles or in forests of the Far East. What makes the local economy special? 
Well, the growing bounties, we kind of just mentioned medicines and poisons, but also fine woods, solidified sap as ambers, um, and animal pelts are also called out as a, a eastern trade good. And then like we were saying earlier, it's really not linked heavily into the trade of creation. So there are kind of specialty goods, but it, it's not a, not a key node in any trade networks. Is it also one of those things, though, where the, where the forest can kind of provide anything, where it's not unreasonable that there is a particular breed of tree whose seeds are actually emeralds or jade or something like that? Is the idea that people are kind of on the, more on the edge of survival and making their way with a weird cross-section of goods? I think both are appropriate, especially okay. once you get towards the borders of the wild, where you can have all kinds of wacky stuff, like the Forest of Arms. It's made entirely out of halberds or entirely out of, like, limbs? Limbs. Nice. Yep. Yep. I like both of those things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The single tree in creation is responsible for all of the stupid weapons that you find in Dungeons & Dragons. Um, This one solely produces glaive gusarmes. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, it's only a Lucerne hammer if it's from the Lucerne region of Switzerland. Otherwise, it's just a sparkling white warhammer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) what interesting characters or gods live in the east this is where we actually have a bunch of them we mentioned raxi queen of fangs when talking about mahalanka and she's one of the well-known lunar elders who's been around since first edition in her third edition incarnation she is renowned for being one of the sorcerers who reshaped the lunar cast and devised the moon silver tattoos Uh, she's also the foremost sorcerer of the silver pact and has embraced her persona as the monstrous queen of fangs to rule uh, as a culture hero and uh, like monster who is viewed as a punishment to the unworthy. The third edition version of Roxy is the best one. Yes. No contest. Yes. Uh, there is also the Dowager of the Irreverent Vulgate in Unrent Veils, the Death Lord who orchestrated the Contagion. She rules over the Nas Fens, an inhospitable swamp that surrounds the Well of Uter, which may be a portal that draws from worlds beyond creation. The animals in the Fens are both alive and dead, skeletal, uh, skeletal and rotting, but also raising dead offspring. From her citadel, the Mound of Forsaken Seeds, she studies the powers of the Well of Uter and plots to use its power to free herself from the clutches of the Neverborn. She captures and raises mortal children, picking from among them which to empower with abyssal exaltation. A detail I kind of hope we get rid of this time around. The bit about uh, one of her abyssal exalts always being uh, an ima- a magic immortal child, the idea of like the vampire child is fucked up and often results in pedophilia uh like it's fine if she's like a creepy witch who captures and eats kids whatever uh you could you could do something more interesting but uh. i i really like the bit about her trying to break free from the uh, neverborn that wasn't something i had remembered from yeah, reading about her previously um, um and it, it's just it's mm-hmm. slipping there and like that kind of puts her in a cool place relative to the other death lords I mean, I think I would argue that the Dowager is the most successful Death Lord. One of the things, I think we talked about this in the Abyssals episode, one of the things I like and dislike about the Death Lords is that they're basically a soap opera that's been going on for at an extremely slow pace for several thousand years. They're just terrible people fighting with each other and like kind of getting nothing done forever. But the Dowager orchestrated the Contagion, which killed thousands and thousands of people. Suck on that, Mask of Winners. <laughs> Yep. 
The East is also home to three major forest gods. I mean, of, of course, like everywhere in creation, there are minor gods of various forests or trees. We mentioned Elder Oak above, who's the god of the oak forest around Farhold. But the three great forest gods kind of rule over the different segments of the East. Aralak the Unseen is a goddess of eastern jungles. She's a goddess of reptilian creatures and was once the keeper of the primordial's zoo, essentially. And so she's also the patron of most of creation's dinosaurs. With heaven's lax oversight, she wants to repopulate the jungles with more draconic and reptilian beasts. She oversees the southern jungles from her rainbow palace that shimmers above the, the canopy, accessible only through magic telling me that there's a god whose whole goal is to just make the southeast jurassic park yes <laughs> i also appreciate this pro-dinosaur agenda <laughs> yeah she's pro-dinosaur pro-dragon kings she's pretty neat next up is kaltia the eternal a mortal hunter and warrior who won her godhood and position as goddess of eastern evergreen forests through her deeds um, she's also the patron of halta so we could have talked about her a few episodes ago but I forgot until reviewing for this episode. I'm not 100% sure she was originally mortal, but that the write-up implies it without outright stating it. And finally, Golden-Eyed Jorst is the god of deciduous forests. He keeps his temple of joy open to all, and he is a gracious and accommodating host. The temple is made from living trees grown together and is lavish in every way. And he closes his sanctum only when he wanders the forest, or during winter when he doesn't exist for a season. He has a long rivalry with Kaltia, and so these, these three gods of the eastern forest kind of set the, the tone and kind of get into some of the divine politics that can make Exalted interesting, especially from, say, a sidereal perspective, or if you're looking for a weird ally as a solar or lunar. What interesting creatures, natural or supernatural, live there? So here's where we're going to finally fill in that asterisk and talk about the Dragon Kings. Uh, Hooray! Dragon Kings... <laughs> dragon kings are kind of what they sound like they are literally a species of sentient dinosaur people um, they have four subsplats which are called breeds and honestly that's pretty accurate because they're like just types of uh, species of creature and all of each each breed is vaguely elemental because they correspond to a direction there are the terok who are the northern ones and have associations with air raptok who are the eastern ones who have an association with wood uh, Mosok, who are the water ones and have an as or, or the western ones and have an association with water, and Enclok, who are the southern ones and therefore also have an association with fire. Uh, you may have noticed that there's not an earth one, and that's because there are no dragon kings from the center because they're old as shit, and that's where the gods used to live. <laughs> so all dragon kings start off as basically feral lizards, feral human-sized lizards. Dragon kings are big, for the record. And then it requires another dragon king to find them and awaken their essence, which turns them into a thinking being. A solar can learn to do this, too. I believe there was a charm for it in the first edition player's guide. However, once they become a thinking being and awaken their essence, they learn charm-alikes called Paths of Elemental Mastery, which basically do charm shit, like let them move super fast to be incredibly strong, create illusions, control the elements, shapeshift, and so on and so forth. As far as I know... They couldn't learn sorcery in the past, but sort of the, the, the fundamental metaphysics of the way sorcery works in third edition is a little bit different. So maybe if they, if they reappear for this edition, they probably can access the first circle of sorcery since mortals can now. 
Dragon Kings were the first devotees of the Unconquered Sun. He's basically their god. <laughs> like, <laughs> they worshipped him first, and they remain deeply devoted to him. But it turns out human souls were necessary for exaltation, so when it came time for revolution, the Dragon Kings got passed over in favor of the humans that would become the Solars. You might imagine that this would make the Dragon Kings, like, mad at them for being bypassed by their beloved god, but they don't. They're actually like, fuck yeah, you're his kids, we love you! <laughs> I also find it really great that there is this potential source of allies, if you're willing to go find them, in these big sentient dinosaur people who love and support you as a solar in a world where everyone hates you, except these cool dinosaur guys. I, it's one of those things, it's like, oh, we'll have to take the fight to the realm, but the only thing we have are each other. Also our immense power and artifacts that are thousands of years old. And an army of dinosaurs. And an army of dinosaur men. <laughs> Oh, we ever triumph. Uh, so one of the other cool things about them is that they can become something called an ochilike, which allows, in which they allow a god to possess them, and then they gain basically like their own essence power plus the god's power and become like a mini exalt of that god, which in third edition terms kind of turns them into temporary exigents. It is this is not a permanent arrangement. The god is not diminished by soul merging with the dragon king. And at any point in time, they can split apart. But it was a thing that totally let uh, Dragon King player characters play in Exalt level games. Also, the first edition art of these guys in the player's guide is just the best. Yep. Dinosaur guys. It's very, it's very evocative. They're yeah, cool. They're very cool looking dinosaur guys. Except when I was originally looking through Exalted and saw that there was a group called the Dragonblooded, I was like, awesome, we're going to get to play dragon people. And was mildly disappointed at the time that, no, they were just elementally powered uh, heroes. Uh, and then there were the Dragon Kings. So, mission accomplished, Exalted. <laughs> <laughs> We've mentioned the Raksha in the East. And the Raksha in the East garb themselves in symbols of the forest and hunt and raid the mortals of the region. The dominant faction is the Opal Court, who are obsessed with the gloriousness of warfare. At the court itself is a collection of silk pavilions deep in the wild, war banners, uh, declaring the nobility of the Raksha who, who come to test their might. They boast of their deeds, challenge each other to duels, and plan great wars from the court. It is also where some fair folk believe that the follow-on the Balorian Crusade will occur, and they will once again wipe creation back into the wild. Yeah, there are also lots of beast folk, Hawks, snakes, bats, parrots, apes, ritons, etc. You can be a beast person from any of the biodiversity supported by forests, jungles, and swamps, um, and the dominance of the lunar influence in that direction. So uh, what weird creatures are there out there? There's a handful of them, and, and thank you, Terry, for filling us in on these. Uh, there's the forest <laughs> mimic, which is sort of like a lyrebird on steroids. It can mimic any noise and tries to say enticing things. So there's a mimic with a taste for conspiracy theorists out there going, Jet fool can't melt steel beams! They also get larger as they age. There's also the Hatra, which is the latest installation of murder tubes across creation. It's a pack hunting version of a flying squirrel, except they're more like flying weasels and each is the size of a small dog. The text says they hunt in groups of 10 to 20, so apply the normal 5 to 1 prey to predator ratio for mustelids and they can take down a 10 foot tall, 1500 pound Kodiak bear. Remember kids, wear a hat before going into the death woods. 
There's also the Great Rock, uh, which is a big-ass bird of prey, not used for war, but to haul off sweet loot after battle. Uh, I think we mentioned them in relation to Mount Metagalapa last time. Uh, how, how much of a flex is it to say, I'm not using the la largest raptor in creation to kill you, but merely to steal your swag? And then there are wood spiders. They're giant little metal spiders made out of wood, and they eat people. Compelling and rich. Anything else before we talk story options? So, Monica, what's a story that you would like to run? In the east. I'm probably something to do with finding your new best friend, the Dragon Kings. <laughs> Maybe some sort of, like, the Dragon Kings want the circle to help them, you know, wrangle up lost feral Dragon Kings so that their society can continue. And, you know, while you're here, could you deal with the problem of the horrible cannibal cult that lives in our basement? Please and thank you. <laughs> we put some really heavy rocks on the door that leads down there, but they're, they're hitting it real hard. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have I have never run anything with the Dragon Kings, so I think it would be great fun to play with them. So I guess they're on my list of stories that I'd be interested in running. But since Monica took that one, uh, maybe something to do with the Fair Folk. That's another area of Exalted that I haven't spent a lot of time running stories with so something dealing with perhaps the the fair folk uh trying to unite around a new figurehead to lead a new invasion of creation and needing to disrupt that or or deal with the fair folk who don't actually want that or uh, deal with all of the fallout from that beginning maybe something like that so it looks like of the directions the east kind of has like the monopoly on chuds like things below you that will eat you that seems to be like one of the recurring elemental themes there's a lot of places in creation where that's true okay no one has a monopoly on chuds that's good to know no creation is full of chuds <laughs> that's going on a shirt what kind of story um, <laughs> are you inspired to tell about the east harry so this is a weird one, and I have no idea how I would do it, but all of these are hypothetical, so who cares? I really liked the illustration on page 76 of of Lunar Fangs at the Gate of the First Age Ruins of Sparrowman. I find very striking because there's this very out-of-place-and-time element to it. It is one of the few images from Exalted that to me feels surreal. So I would want to do a Tom Stoppard's Arcadia game that goes back and forth between the characters being First Age denizens of those towers before they fall. So the characters set up what happens in there and what ruins they would leave behind and then switch to their other characters who are then exploring those ruins and trying to put together the pieces of it. And since they have absolutely no context to it, to it, do it wrong. Kind of like the way Umberto Eco was noted for uh, 10,000 years from now, someone may come upon a recording of Singing in the Rain and think that it is a fertility rite or, or something done before a good harvest or something like that, as opposed to it just being a musical. Uh, kind of switching back and forth between the ruins and the present time and neither one knowing what, what their destinies will bring. That would be cool. Sounds pretty rad, actually. <laughs> Thank you. And if you're going to run an adventure in the East, what books should you look to? Well, this is kind of a hard one as well. Because of the way the direction is split between books, there's a bit in Exalted 3rd Edition Core 
There's a bit, especially from Mahalanka in uh, Fangs at the Gate. When Across the Eight Directions comes out, there will be a great chapter on the East, I am sure. For past edition books, to prepare for this episode, I looked at Scavenger Sons, uh, Compass of Terrestrial Directions, Volume 3, The East, uh, Compass of Celestial Directions, Volume 2, The Wild, and the Abyssals book from second edition, to, to pull oh. in details. I prefer the presentation of the Dragon Kings in the first edition player's guide, but the second edition Scroll of the Fallen Races has more power options, including like weird corrupt ones. So there's those two. But I also looked at Compass of Terrestrial Directions, the East, to remember what the fuck was going on in Rathus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also a, bunch, uh, a handful of stuff on like what was going on in Rathus in the past in Dreams of the First Age. Chaz, if we're interested in finding out what you're up to, where can we do that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at StoryToldChaz. I continue to run the Fall of Giara on the Story Told podcast feed, where we are very soon getting to the end of Act 2 and the greater threats of Act 3. And Monica, how about you? Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at ZenithSun. And if you want to listen to me talk about more general game design topics... Uh, you can go listen to Bonus Experience uh, at bxpcast.com. BXP is currently on a hiatus for the month of February while we sort stuff out for our new season, which starts in March. Like, first or second week of March? I'm not 100% sure where it lands. On our, our It's on our launch anniversary is the new season. We're going to restructure our Patreon and a whole bunch of cool new stuff is coming. And Terry, where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more of you? If they want to hear me uh, have weird counterintuitive takes about the RPG industry, but generally try and be supportive of everyone, because unlike in real life on the internet, I'm afraid of offending people, which is the exact opposite, I think, of the rest of humanity. You can do that at Terry Robinson or my Old World of Darkness podcast about Mage the Ascension, Mage the Podcast at magethepodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Systematic Understanding of Everything, an exalted podcast. Go to exaltcast.com to subscribe, see our show notes, or listen to our past episodes. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and Anchor.fm. If you have a question, shoot us an email at questions at exaltcast.com. If you'd like to support our show, please consider using the affiliate links in our show notes to make purchases on DriveThruRPG and thestorytellervault.com. The opening theme is Return of the Solar Exalted, and the closing theme is the Sidereal Exalted Lesser But Safe from Fanfare for the Chosen by James Simple, and is used with permission. In the meantime, exalt strong.